Welcome to Alimentary, the podcast series where you will not only learn about your amazing body, how it works, and of course why food is so important, but also pick up some simple recipes and lifestyle tips and tweaks, which will help you to influence your health in a positive way. So a few years ago, I began to experience some really scary symptoms. Um, I suppose it was a really busy time in my life. I had taken on probably too much. Um, so I kind of began by thinking that I was just getting a bit run down, you know, and that once I got this, that and the other done, that, that I'd be OK. So it started off with um, I had a low grade headache. And this is over a period of several months, you know, and I wouldn't get headaches. You know, I hardly ever get a headache. Um, So my vision wasn't great, but of course I wear glasses. So I thought maybe my eyesight was just getting worse, Um, but it it was different. It was kind of like that really blurry, tired um, feeling, you know. So I also started to have issues with my memory. So I couldn't remember people's names. Um, I was sitting in class, I remember a couple of days with some people around me who I spoke to every week. I couldn't remember their name. I couldn't remember the name of one of my lectures. Really scary symptoms. And you can imagine what was going through my head, you know, what I thought I was 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 happening to me. Um, it sort of culminated um with an experience when I was at a funeral one day. So I was sitting beside a friend and I got this laryngitis sign so it's like an electric shock literally from the top of my head the whole way down my right side right down to my to my toes I it's I think it probably lasted you know 20 seconds maybe 30 seconds but it was like everything slowed down and I can remember so clearly the thoughts that were going through my head, you know, when it was at first it was like, oh, what, what is happening to me? And then it was there is no way I'm causing a scene at this funeral and there's no way I'm going to have to get Kevin here to, to carry me out, you know, because I felt a bit nauseous as well. But it passed um, and I just sort of made a note. I must, you know, obviously organized to have some bloods done. But I forgot about it for a few hours because obviously, you know, it was a funeral and it was an upsetting occasion. Later on that day, I did make an appointment to see my GP. But then that evening, I realized that I had numb patches. So I couldn't feel my face. I couldn't feel parts of my arm, you know, parts of my leg. So I rang doctor on call. It was a Friday, Friday night. I rang doctor on call and they said, get in here. Don't drive, you know, straight away. So Desi brought me in and we were there for hours and they did various different tests on me, you know, and just monitored me for a few hours to make sure I wasn't having a stroke or something like that, you know. So that weekend, I was supposed to go to college. It's the only weekend that I missed. I was not fit to do anything except lying in front of the fire. Um, it was November, so um, I couldn't even cook. You know, I, I couldn't do anything. So I just literally lay there for the weekend, recovered from whatever it was, and then um, got myself back together on Monday, back to work. Um, had an appointment with my GP that week, had some bloods done, and she I have a great GP. She organized for some tests for me. So within a few weeks, I had a CT scan, so scan of my brain. and then. Um, I was it was coming close to Christmas at that stage. So I had an appointment for a neurologist after Christmas and towards the end of January, I think it was. So in the meantime, my symptoms were getting worse. I was having really scary night times. I would wake up in the night and it was like I had this cold creeping all over me, you know, especially around my torso. So it's just like a cold, clammy crawling all over me. And then I would think, I don't know if I can walk. You know, so I would have to get up out of bed and walk around to make sure that my legs were still working. It was so strange. I was very scared. And at that point, I think I thought, you know, we shouldn't obviously ever diagnose ourselves. But I think I thought I had multiple cirrhosis. So I was I went back up to college one of the days anyway. And a lecturer who was only there kind of covering for someone. So it was one of those serendipitous things. Her name was Linda DeCourcy. And she mentioned this book, Could It Be B12, An Epidemic of Misdiagnosis? And she mentioned it in relation to digestive issues and diseases. Obviously, I have celiac disease, so I my ears, you know, perked up and um, I thought, oh, I, you know, I went obviously and bought the book that, that night. Um, I read it 
and everything in it just made sense to me. Um, lots of, you know, anecdotal case studies, lots of science uh, behind the conclusions in the book. And I did not want, however, to diagnose myself. You know, I never would want to do that. But I was so scared. I didn't want to wait for that appointment because I wasn't even sleeping because those symptoms are so horrible at night, you know. So I realized, obviously, I was stressed too much on my plate. I my digestive my digestion wasn't optimal. So I put myself on a protocol to help my digestion, to relax a bit. Um, actually, we had the Christmas holidays as well. And also uh, methylcobalamin, that's a B12, a form of B12 and a B-complex. I had been keeping a diary of my symptoms as well, which I just went back over. So it's actually made me um, a little bit emotional reading back over it, to be honest. Um, I noticed a difference within three days. I started to feel more like myself. I started to feel like my brain was working again. I was really relieved. I was going to hopefully be able to do my exams and, and get them, you know, pass them. Um, I would say it probably took about like six to eight weeks to be kind of like 100%, but it was a lot better within a few weeks. So, of course, by the time I bounced into my neurologist appointment, um, I was back to sort of my chirpy self. And um, so I don't think he took me too seriously, you know, because I didn't I wasn't presenting with these symptoms. And um, so I didn't get that medical diagnosis. But I do know that I know that I need to supplement with vitamin B12 every so often. I just know some of the little signs that um, that I need to watch out for and, and I'll top it up. So that the, the authors of that book are Sally Patchlock and her husband, Jeffrey Stewart. And I can't believe I contacted, I reached out to Sally and I'm so delighted, thrilled, honoured, fangirling, um, because she said yes, that she would, we would talk to me and we could do an interview. So I'll just tell you a little bit about the authors of this book, Sally and Jeffrey, before we kick off. So Sally Patchlock is a nurse and she received her bachelor's degree in nursing from Wayne State University. Prior to entering the field of nursing, she received an associate's degree of applied science with magna cum laude honours. She was also a licensed advanced emergency medical technician and worked as a paramedic prior to and during nursing school. She has worked in healthcare for many years and has cared for thousands of patients. In addition, she's a trauma nursing corps course provider, an advanced cardiac life support provider, an emergency nurse pediatric course provider, and a member of the Emergency Nurses Association. In 1985, Sally diagnosed herself with vitamin B12 deficiency after her doctors had failed to identify her condition. As a result, she is passionate about the need to educate the public about the dangerous consequences of this hidden and all too common disease. Now, her husband, Jeffrey Stewart, is board certified in emergency medicine and has been practicing for, for many years. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree in health sciences and psychology from Kalamazoo College in 1988. He's certified in advanced trauma life support, advanced cardiac life support and advanced pediatric life support. Dr. Stewart received his Doctor of Osteopathy degree from the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine in 1992. And he participated in visual brain research at the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda, MD in 1987, and was involved in cholesterol metabolism research at the Rockefeller University Hospital in New York City in 1985. He's a member of the American Osteopathic Association, the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians and Michigan Osteopathic Association and the Macomb County Osteopathic Medical Association. So together they co-authored this book, Could It Be B12, An Epidemic of Misdiagnosis? And in, nine, uh, sorry, in 2011, it was the winner of the Indie Excellence Award for Best Health Book. It's been translated into Dutch, Slovenian, Spanish, Polish, Bulgarian, Portuguese and Italian. Sally educates the public and healthcare professionals worldwide about B12 deficiency and she has appeared in documentaries and also in 2015, film producer Alyssa Leonard wrote and directed the movie Sally Patchlock, which is based on her lifelong battle to raise awareness about B12 deficiency and the consequences of its misdiagnosis. So you can see how amazing both Sally and Jeffrey are and how much experience and research they have put behind this movement 
um, through their website, which uh, which I'll, I'll put links to the website. I'll put links to the book. I'll put links to the film about Sally, which is on YouTube now, actually. Um, I'll put those in the show notes as well. So I'm so excited to have a chat with Sally Patchelock. I wonder, Sally, could we start off maybe back at the very beginning? You, you were actually quite young when you were diagnosed. It kind of was a fluke. I wasn't really having big problems. It was a fluke that I found it and I saw signs and symptoms earlier in my blood work and I questioned it. And then I kind of put it together like a puzzle and I started questioning physicians saying, well, what about this? What about that? And thank goodness that I was diagnosed early and confirmed it with all the proper tests because they were surprised and didn't know. So I could have been on a journey like most people that are misdiagnosed chronically. And then you get some kind of, um, you know, long lasting symptoms, like say peripheral Mm -hmm. neuropathy, et cetera. So, and then that's what made me kind of dive into learning about B12 deficiency to just understand my own disease process. Just like if you're a diabetic, you you need to learn about it. If you have cardiovascular disease, you start just to learn stuff. So as I was learning, I was going, wow, like this is, this is something bigger than what it is, how lucky I was. And then when I tried to teach other people at my work, like physicians, nurses, they just kind of downplayed and said, oh, that's so rare, da, 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 da. And, and I realized there was such a knowledge deficit. And during that time, I went back, uh, I was in nursing school. So I did all my research papers, et cetera, on B12. And I just started doing private study and it became more and more. And the more I would share, the more people would resist me. And so that's how I dove into it. So yeah. I feel like I've really dodged a bullet. And working in an emergency department, we see all ages. I was seeing patients coming in with signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency. And when I would ask a physician to test the patient, they look at me and go, yeah, right. Like they, like, yeah. they, a, it's rare. B, like, go take a vitamin. And they, they just like blew it off. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just emergency room physicians. These patients were admitted their attending physician blew it off or the specialist. And then you could see that the person, you know, there's a way you could see how many times they've presented, how many times they've been hospitalized, et cetera. Why did not anyone think to include B12 deficiency in the differential diagnosis? Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean everybody has it, but no. you have to rule it out just like you rule out any other disorder. Exactly. And that's what led me to this. Mm-hmm. Because it, 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 the, the, I mean, one of the reasons for ruling it out is because it is actually, you know, it's simple to fix, you know. Um, I mean, obviously, depending on the root cause, it may mean like, you know, lifelong B12 injections, for example. But if it's a, a temporary health issue, um, say someone has just been particularly stressed, you know, or they're, they have gut issues that need to be healed, you know, it, it, B12, uh, you know, I think you say in your book for a couple of dollars a month, you know, you can stay well. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I think it, that's the question. Is that why we are not, mm. uh, there is no awareness campaign. I've started something. Why isn't this being talked about? Why yeah. this, sh- this should have been solved two decades ago. Yeah. You know, easy fix. And, you know, there are, there's literature on it and it's, it's, you know, you see things, but why aren't we practicing it? Mm-hmm. And I think the main problem we have is there is a knowledge deficit in the medical community and healthcare community. Mm-hmm. You cannot treat what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's, un- it's not under the radar screen. We're not addressing it. And patients are getting misdiagnosed. And there's no need for that. And it's very expensive to have a B12 deficiency and not have it treated. Absolutely. Because the the conditions that it mimics, I know that you refer to it as the deadly mimic. So for example, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, dementia, and Alzheimer's, um, you know, B12 deficiency can look like those, for example. And obviously once someone has, um, once someone has experienced symptoms for a long period of time, it's, you know, it's not always a case where you can reverse them. So in that case, someone needs a lot of care. Absolutely. Mm. They share the same signs and symptoms. So you cannot, you cannot um, say somebody has dementia without ruling out B12 deficiency. You'd yeah. hate to put them on uh, dementia drugs without having a different medical reason for it. Because B12 deficiency does cause cognitive decline, can cause dementia, and the th- it can become permanent. 
Mm-hmm. See, there's a window of opportunity. You can't just have this for five, six years and go, oh, then you find it, you know, and then you go here, let's treat you. And they go, well, they don't really get better because you've waited too long. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a big problem. Yeah. Now, some of the case studies that you go through in the book as well, I mean, there's such a variety, like, for example, a 10 month old baby, you know. Um, So it's, you know, maybe part of the problem is because there is no one typical way of presenting age or or symptom of presenting with B12. Well, there's a big problem with the pediatric population because the number one cause of children having B12 deficiency um say fetuses, neonates, infants, is from the mother. It's a maternal deficiency. If the mother's deficient, then the the baby's going to be more deficient. You know, as the yeah. baby's growing, it's taking all the B12 and nutrients from the mother. She decides to breastfeed and she's deficient. Mm-hmm. Her milk is going to be deficient. And that child can become, you know, depending on what his stores were normally, he can get into, he or she can get into big trouble. Yeah. And so that's why there's and we're not we're not screening pregnant Mm. women. We're not screening infants. We don't know the signs and symptoms of of pediatric B12 deficiency. It it is is just such a mismanaged um, disease. Yeah. And there's such an opportunity to and, and we I don't know if you realize this, but we have the our, you know, initial book. But because the pediatric population was being so missed, I made another book um, in 20, uh, well, it was done, it was published in 2015. And then we kind of changed the title, same information, 2016, uh, it was, could it be B12, pediatric edition, what every parent needs to know about vitamin B12 deficiency, just on pediatrics, Mm -hmm. from growing in the womb up to the age of like 18 and like young adults. Mm -hmm. I know people don't realize this, But the number one sign and symptom of B12 deficiency in pediatrics is developmental delay or developmental regression. So any child that is suspected to have autism or on the autism spectrum has to have B12 deficiency ruled out properly. And that is not just with a serum B12. So those Mm -hmm. children are also being missed. Not saying that everyone has it, but you have to include it again in the differential diagnosis, which is not being done. Exactly, exactly. It's about including it in the testing so that it can be ruled out. Obviously, some of those symptoms can be other diseases, but but ruling out B12 deficiency should be part of, of that protocol. Um, I mean, even going back before before um, couples become pregnant, it can be also implicated in male and female infertility. Yes, they yes. have done studies where like sperm counts are lower Um, you know, you have to have proper nutrition, you know, to carry a fetus. So, and then there's, there's women that have, um, there's all several, 12 different reasons someone could be B12 deficient and nutrition is so important. You wonder if the infertility, um, if they're really checking that and there are mutations, genetic mutations that, you know, maybe nowadays they do this, but they should be checking for B12. It's very important for the, for the growth of a fetus, just like, like folate is very important. So you don't get spina bifida or so it's, you know, folate B12, they're like siblings. It's very important for development of the, of the, you know, the neuro tracts, the brain. So it's, it's, again, that's, that's a whole nother area that we're not thinking of. Uh, Currently our ranges, say if we have a blood test in Ireland, I think it's fairly similar. I looked up, I think it was the Cleveland Clinic in the States. So I think it's fairly, fairly similar. The range is about 139 to 650. So anybody that falls in between those two, generally they're told it's fine. You know, so someone could be at 250, 300. I rarely see any of my clients with a really any higher, you know, with their B12 results, any higher than about 300, you know. Um, but I did notice on the Cleveland Clinic site where they said that between so below 150 is deficient, but then 150 to 450 does uh, um, that really people should be there should be further testing done if someone is in that range. One of the other things to consider there is that sometimes the blood serum test isn't enough, Sally. And I know in your book, you go into great detail about the other tests which can back up a B12 um, issue. Yes. And there's other evidence as time goes on, there's more research being done and they're being published 
probably, you know, monthly, there's new journal articles coming out. I recently found a, a J. David Spence. He's a professor of neurology, clinical pharmacology. He's a director of the Stroke Prevention Atherosclerosis Research Center in, um, in Toronto. And he, he's participated in studies with aspirin, Plavix, Berlinta. So he was an investigator on a whole bunch of trials having to do with um, brain research and strokes. He has found in his research, he believes the serum B12, if you are under 542, 542 picograms per milliliter, he believes, and you're symptomatic, you should be tested with other markers like methylmalonic acid and homocysteine to make sure you don't have a B12 deficiency. So he has promoted this and believes this, mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's still not being practiced. We, we are saying if you're under 200, oh, you have a deficiency. Mm -hmm. In our books, I think in the first book that was published in 2005, we said, oh, if you're under 400, we, we would call it the gray zone between 200 and 400. And mm -hmm. I had upped it in the second edition up to 500. Yeah. What yeah. we were seeing in the emergency department and the research that we were doing, um, you, you you couldn't trust it. If you're under 500 symptomatic, you need to trust, trust those other markers. Mm -hmm. Well, here, this physician, uh, neurologist and has been studying this himself and he has a stroke clinic, et cetera. This is what he's found and this is what he is recommending. Mm. So there you go. We were yeah. on target. Absolutely. And actually, alongside your work in the States, um, Dr. Joseph Chandy in the UK, who, who you uh, mentioned in your book as well, um, he reported. So first of all, he'd been treating patients with neuropsychiatric symptoms um, with or without the, you know, the enlarged blood cells, the macrocytosis, um, he was using B12 replacement therapy since 1981. And where in the UK, the nationally B12 deficiency would be um, at a rate of 0.01%. Because he tests in his clinic, um, his practice population um, percentage is 18%. So that's because he's actually testing. So there are physicians, but, you know, who who have acknowledged, you know, exactly what you're saying, but it's just that it's not common practice or um, it's not part of, say, the the recommended recommended levels on the blood serum tests haven't changed. Right. And they have to realize, too, I think the, the, the problem is that physicians need to be retaught. Mm -hmm. If they're waiting for macrocytosis, which is enlarged red blood cells, and they're waiting for anemia, because usually people with pernicious anemia, traditionally you have a severe anemia and you have very large red blood cells. I can guarantee you, if you're just looking for that, you're going to have a late diagnosis and a misdiagnosis. Mm -hmm. So many patients do not have macrocytosis. In fact, probably most of them don't have macrocytosis. They don't. Mm -hmm. and, um, and severe anemia. You do not have to be anemic whatsoever or macrocytic for a variety of reasons. And that's what we need to re-educate the medical community. And that's what they were taught in medical school. Pernicious anemia, if you take like a, your board exams, you'd say, okay, anemia, macrocytosis, you'd go, oh, that's how they do catch some people. They mm -hmm. become severely, um, they're very anemic, they're macrocytic, which will go, oh, they'll add in the B12 or do a bone marrow, et cetera. But you don't have to have any. So therefore, if your hemoglobin's good and you're not macrocytic, they miss it. And that's one of the main reasons why they're not testing patients. Right. And the, the, then, the, then the other part is you can't trust a serum B12. They're not doing the other um, backup tests, homocysteine and methylmalonic acid. Hmm. So okay. that, that's the problem. Yeah. Um. I and suppose. they don't realize they don't sorry they don't realize no. they don't realize the severity of what B12 deficiency can do. Mm. I can remember physicians just going oh like B12 like they'd laugh yeah. and go oh go take a vitamin like like I think because you think it's a vitamin oh it's good for you they have to realize that this causes you know it can I remember telling one physician you know like like the kind of, like stop laughing like you know you can go and yeah. you can you can get placed into a wheelchair you can become like yeah. paralyzed and they're going like what? What do you mean a wheelchair? Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I found a malpractice suit where a woman was confined to a wheelchair because she was chronically misdiagnosed. 
And I just kind of let that little button out and they were kind of, what, what, what do you mean? And then they became interested because they thought, oh, I can, this, this can do this. And I'm thinking, A, how don't you know about this? B, why have you been listening to me for years about this? And that started a couple physicians in the emergency department I work at to start testing patients and going, wow, this is interesting. Oh, okay. And they became on board. Yeah, it's um, the, the, I mean, the results of undiagnosed B12 are absolutely debilitating, um, you know, they leave people with very little quality of life and um, literally, as you said, people can end up in a wheelchair, unable to walk. And I actually know a gentleman who was uh, diagnosed with Parkinson's, but it turns out two years down the line, he, um, it was vitamin B12 um, and it was, you know, his his symptoms were, were too far gone at that stage, you know, to be able to reverse them, you know. So that's one person that I know of. And I know of one lawsuit in the north of Ireland, you know, um, again, where someone was misdiagnosed, you know. So it's awful to think that it would be money that would force change. Um, but again, until people are aware, you know, we, you know, I, I certainly hope to add my voice to yours to help to make people aware and take a, some agency over their own health and don't be afraid to ask for their blood test results and, right. and understand them better, you know. You know, B12 is so important and it's well known that it does affect the nervous system. So it causes neurologic signs and symptoms. It can be confused with many other neurological diseases, like you said, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis. Um, you can think the person has dementia when they really have like the beginning B12 deficiency. Um, so like the neurologic signs and symptoms are paresthesias, weakness in your legs, arms, and going to the trunk. You can have a balance disorder, unsteady gait, which can lead to falls, which is that's a problem within itself that we haven't discussed fall-related trauma. You can have dizziness, restless legs, tremor, forgetfulness, confusion, um, abnormal reflexes. So when you look at all those signs and symptoms, um, anybody presenting with that, they have to rule out B12 deficiency. Again, with the other markers, yeah. we have to rechange the range of what a B12 is. And in saying the neurologic signs and symptoms, because it really does attack the brain, you're more at risk of having strokes. Why? Because a true B12 deficiency causes high homocysteine, which is a protein, and that will that that makes um, your blood clot more, where you can get blood clots. Okay, mm -hmm. so you're more at risk at stroke. But one thing we haven't talked about is B12 deficiency absolutely does cause mental illness. It causes psychiatric signs and symptoms, depression, irritability. You can be paranoid, hallucinations, psychosis, personality changes. And if you look at all that we are having a mental health crisis, yes. definitely in America, probably worldwide, mm. there's all these psychiatric drugs being, and granted, a lot of people have psychiatric illness and they need to be treated with medication. But you must rule out B12 deficiency before you start prescribing other drugs. Yeah. Because again, that person is going to get worse and worse and worse. And who knows if, you know, maybe the drugs help like a little something, but that B12 deficiency is still going on. You're never going to get them where they should be. And you run the risk of causing permanent neurologic problems like neuropathy, et cetera, wheelchair, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. and actually even giving them like a blood clot, having a pulmonary embolism, stroke, heart attack, a DVT. So this is a multi-system disease. It's a double whammy mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. Because B12 is so essential at cellular level, I guess, would, would, that, would it, that be why it affects people in so many different ways? Because wherever our weak spot is, we're all individuals with an individual DNA and environment and all of that. So we all have our own sort of weak spots, if you like, weak links in the chain. So a B12 deficiency, which affects our, us at a cellular level, is going to maybe manifest differently in, in everybody. Do you, do you think that that's maybe why there's such a wide variety of symptoms? Um, well you have to have, it is a cell at a cellular level because it, 
there are two pathways I was talking about. Um, if you have a true B12 deficiency, most people don't know this, you will have a functional folate deficiency. So B12 is needed for the conversion of metrotetrahydrofolate into tetrahydrofolate, the active form. You have to have B12 and this enzyme called methionine synthase. So you're going to get all the cellular level things that you do with a folate deficiency. The other pathway, it's an enzymatic pathway. You turn homocysteine into the essential protein methionine by having methyl B12. So it's the metabolism of homocysteine. So that's what causes the blood clots with the homocysteine. The second enzymatic pathway is the metabolism of methylmalonic acid. You have to have adenosyl B12 and another um, enzyme, methylmalonyl coenzyme mutase, to convert methylmalonyl coenzyme A into succinic acid. If that doesn't happen, methylmalonic acid backs up and it's injurious to the myelin and to the to the nerve uh, to the brain the tissues mm -hmm. that's why you get the peripheral neuropathy so it's like a double uh, a huge disease that can injure the body because you're injuring the myelin the fatty protective covering that coats all your nerves mm -hmm. and the brain which can cause uh, the neuropathy subacute sub combined degeneration of the spinal cord so you can't walk etc but then it attacks the brain because of that high homocysteine so it is, a, it is a real double insult on the central and peripheral nervous system, mm -hmm. and let alone the psychiatric yeah. manifestations that you cause, that cause it. Yeah. In the world of psychiatry, um, is, it, is awareness growing? Um, you know, is it being tested for in the early stages more I, regularly? You know, I, I, I I have no idea. I mm. assume some psychiatric pra practices mm. use it. Others don't. All I can say is I see a lot of uh, patients coming in mm. that are on psychiatric meds and you ask them, have you been, you know, <laughs> yeah. have you, you know, and I don't think maybe they know you'd have to go through their charts long ago when we were able to, you know, access and look at, you know, medical records, et cetera, or, or certain patients that I have we are still finding people that are on psychiatric meds that prove to be B12 deficient. So not everybody is practicing yeah. the same way. It should be the standard of care. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, you know, we have um, protocols. Mm -hmm. I think that the medical community, and it has to be at the high, at the medical schools, et cetera, they have to be on board. There needs to be a, what I've been promoting all along and asking for is a standard of care change. Mm -hmm. It needs to be added in the clinical pathway that you must rule out cobalamin deficiency. Mm -hmm. It should be, a, you know, especially uh, for psychiatric meds or, or doing neurologic med, neuro like thinking the person has Parkinson's, et cetera. But I, I you know, physicians are going to treat the way they want to treat, but sometimes, um, you know, there's different ways. I think if there was a campaign to re-educate, it's a no-brainer that you would you would add this into your practice. I'm sure many physicians do practice this way. Mm -hmm. Many do not, and that's mm -hmm. the problem. It, yeah, it should be standard. standardized. Mm -hmm. You know, we have certain things um, standardized in medicine that you go, of course, you have to do that. I mean, I guess if if the higher ups need to get involved to say, this is the way you're going to practice. Mm -hmm. um, I think that needs to happen because mm -hmm. this has been a very mismanaged disease. It's, it's frustrating because if we go back in history and history is important, um, you know, they won the Nobel prize in medicine and physiology for the life-saving discovery. They called it pernicious deadly anemia because mm -hmm. back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, 1920s, people died from B12 deficiency, but everybody called it pernicious anemia. Mm -hmm. So the name pernicious, which means deadly in anemia is confusing today's physician because they think they have to have a severe anemia and these really big and large red blood cells to think B12. And that's how they're missing it. Maybe mm -hmm. it was back then, but it's different for a variety of reasons. If you take a lot of folic acid, you can shrink the cell size back down and you're not gonna see the macrocytosis as much. Um, you'll see maybe a variety of cells, but when you get a complete blood count, there's a thing called MCV and it's an average of your cells. 
if a patient has an iron deficiency coexisting with a B12 deficiency, it's a mathematical average. Again, it's not going to be as high. And we and that's common. There's many reasons why you cannot trust just the CBC. And you don't want to wait until someone is been B12 deficient for three, four, five years, and then you finally diagnose them. Why? Because you've already caused some kind of a neurologic maybe but, injury or yeah. um poor health for you know maybe a clot here falls. We didn't talk about fall-related trauma mm. because B12 causes unsteadiness, gait disturbance, uh, poor cognitive, like, you know, maybe if you're elderly, you won't use your cane or your walker because you're forgetting or dementia. It absolutely causes fall-related trauma. So if you break a hip, that decreases your lifespan. You can even mm. die from that. Um, you can fall and get a brain bleed because like a subdural hematoma. So there's there's a lot that we're adding. Um, it's just poor care all around. And we're wasting billions of healthcare dollars on not diagnosing and including ruling out B12 deficiency. And I'm not saying everybody has a B12 deficiency. Literature says around uh, maybe 15% in people over the age of 65. Uh, we found around... 19% is, is is what we're finding. And mm. others have found it as high as 25%. I think between 15 to 19% is not over-exaggerating it. No. it that's, that's realistic. And um, that, that's substantial, you know, and that's a, a lot of people. I mean, if you're talking about care and hospital systems globally, you know, ha have been under pressure and continue to be under pressure, it just seems like a no brainer that this would be considered, you know, prevention is better than cure and cheaper than cure in, exactly. in every way, in every way, you know? Well, I think that the um, higher ups need to get involved. Mm. And I've written to insurance companies, uh, legislators, et cetera. And it's just been uh, complete apathy. Mm. So you, you really wonder like what's going on. Mm. Um, you know, we get letters all the time from people on our awareness site of, of just, like recently of patients being still being misdiagnosed. So it's it's very um, it's it's heartbreaking. It's yeah. it's unnecessary. I don't um, it, it's I don't know when it's going to change. Mm -hmm. I think I did have an idea. I was thinking of, you know, maybe, uh, you know, starting 2023 or something, you go to like the United States, go to one state a month mm -hmm. and give a lecture to uh, physicians, nurses, administrators, you know, and if you hit one state, you can, you know, maybe do like four or five. So just to re-educate, I think once, I know every time I've given a PowerPoint presentation, sometimes there's a few, very few physicians in the, in the audience mm -hmm. and they've come up to me and go, oh my God, like they didn't realize, yeah. like they were like, whoa, like they were blown away. And I think it changed their practice, mm -hmm. but you can't take one out of a thousand. So I was thinking, you know, maybe hitting, and that's, that's the problem is trying to get set up for someone to listen <laughs> to yeah. what's going on. But I give the evidence. There exactly. are thousands of published art. My book is based on uh, their medical articles that mm -hmm. are published, peer-reviewed, it's research. Mm -hmm. And every day there's more and more research. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could just, it, it's the same cases, but different places, different people of, of how it was missed. Mm -hmm. So I think of, I think if you, maybe you hit an audience of a hundred, if maybe those, you know, if you even got like 10 of them, whoa, it would change practice. It then would become a standard of care. Maybe some mm -hmm. people would be on a board or whatever, but this is how it should be. Uh, yeah. practice. And I do believe that they should be testing this in the emergency department because some people don't have uh, physicians. Okay. Um, that's not the main reason, but meaning if their primary care doctor never thought of it or never looked into it, somebody needs to look in it just because they're ignoring it. doesn't mean you need to ignore it. Yeah. The other issue we have not discussed is nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide um, is a anesthetic that we use for procedures, for dental procedures, sometimes for medical procedures, uh, children can have it to sedate them during a procedure. And it is also 
a drug of abuse in teens, tweens, and young adults. And what nitrous oxide does, it, it activates B12 in your body. So people are going to say, well, I've had nitrous oxide, never had a problem. If you have good stores and no malabsorption problems, et cetera, you're fine. But if you are low or you have a deficiency and you give somebody nitrous oxide, they are going to have a swift deficiency over five to six weeks. You're going to see major symptoms, which kind of doesn't go with the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency. It's very slow, progressive, gets worse and worse. When they say, wow, like I've had this, over, it started like six weeks ago, you're going to like major neurologic problems. They start thinking stroke, different kind of uh, neurologic diseases. Mm. And that can fool the practitioner. So like in our emergency department, we get a lot of psychiatric clients. Every emergency department does. Every office gets psychiatric. You should be asking that patient. We ask for drugs. We do drug screens, but we need to ask them, do you use nitrous oxide that are called whippets or hippie crack? Um, that can cause severe. And there's articles written of patients that have permanent neuropathy or are wheelchair bound because they abuse nitrous oxide. So that's just another facet of B12 deficiency. It's so interesting. Yeah. And again, we didn't talk about B12 is only naturally found in animal foods. So it's only yes. in meat, shellfish, poultry, eggs, dairy products. It's not found in nuts, fruits, grains, or cereal, mm -hmm. uh, unless it's like added, but it's very like low in a cytochromalamin. Mm -hmm. So people who are vegans, vegetarians, they're at risk. Mm. So there are medications that cause B12 deficiency. It's not just this pernicious anemia. Pernicious no. anemia is just a fraction of several other reasons you can have a B12 deficiency. Mm. There are medications that if you take chronically can cause B12 deficiency. The diet, people who are bulimic, anorexic, uh, we already said the vegan vegetarians are, are at higher risk. So, um, yeah. There are many reasons, any GI disease, if you have, say, a gastric bypass for weight loss, if you take that stomach out, the stomach has to be present to secrete intrinsic factor, and you have your parietal cells, intrinsic factor, and hydrochloric acid. So if you're low on stomach acid, you're not going to metabolize as much and absorb as much. So you have to think of people who take proton pump inhibitors. Over so time- that, that, that will affect it. Uh, uh, diabetic drug metformin over time, that affects uh, your B12 stores. So you've got diet, medications, any GI disease, Crohn's yeah. disease is a big one. You have to have an intact ileum because you have receptors, these ileal cells that have transcobalamin too, that you, you have to have these cells to, to attach the B12 to get into the system. Mm -hmm. So- Anybody with GI disease, you are at risk for B12 deficiency. And I even see patients with Crohn's disease. Some are treated and some are like, no, I've never told I was supposed to take B12. Mm -hmm. And they've had surgery on their ileum, which if you don't have your ileum you in time, yeah. you <laughs> will get a B12 deficiency. Mm. Because and, and because stress is so um, common now, uh, more than ever, obviously stress is going to impact your digestion. So potentially you know, that the uh, GI issues are only going to increase. And so vitamin B12 deficiency will increase, you know, without that awareness and, and education that you're talking about, you know. Um, it's so fascinating. There, there are so many uh, aspects to this, so many conditions that could be relieved by it. Obviously, as, as you said, we're not saying that every one of these symptoms is always B12, but it is certainly worth ruling out because it is much simpler fix if you catch it early on. Yes. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we have to remember that B12 deficiency mimics Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, mm -hmm. Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, vertigo, depression, mental illness, diabetic neuropathy. Mm -hmm. So once you're diabetic, you got neuropathy, they go, oh, well, it's from mm -hmm. your diabetes. You, mm -hmm. Those diabetics are the highest risk patients to be misdiagnosed. Why? Mm -hmm. For them and other people, the number one reason people are misdiagnosed is because they have another medical diagnosis already explaining mm -hmm. those symptoms. So therefore, if I'm mm -hmm. diagnosed with 
My husband's diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Well, he's got Alzheimer's. We're not going to check him for B12. Mm. If I have neuropathy and I'm diabetic, they go, well, it's your diabetes. Mm. It may be, but you still need yeah. to rule out B12 deficiency. Why? Because B12 is well known for over 100 years. It causes peripheral neuropathy. So why are you just assuming that it is just the diabetes and not B12? Well, it's a good point even going back to your A&E and your, your emergency department, I should say, and your, your trauma patients. Who, so if someone comes in and they've had a fall and they've cut themselves or, you know, broken a leg or something, that's going to be treated. But they're, you know, not necessarily going to look at why they fell. Oh, absolutely. I can mm. remember one story. One, I, This was many years ago. I was relieving a nurse for break. I went and I, you know, look, you know, this woman had to give her something, went in there and she was an elderly lady, probably in her early eighties uh, from a, like assisted living nursing home, whatever. She fell and she had a, a fracture to her lower leg and the other leg she had come in again. So she went back to the place, then came back to us like maybe a week, 10 days later, fell again and fractured the other leg. So she had two broken legs. Oh my god. And when gosh. I looked at her, looked at her, looked at her history, the meds she was on, et cetera, talked with her, et cetera. I thought, oh my God, she looks like she's a B12 yeah. deficient person. And yeah. I kid you not, I convinced the doctor to test her and she was B12 deficient. Mm. Okay. Now it doesn't mean she, you know, you can just tell by looking at it, but she had a lot of had a very high cobalamin deficiency risk score that I have mm. made up this thing. He did test her. But that example of telling you shows me this woman had B12 deficiency for a long time for mm. her tests to show it. Mm. And she had it, you know, two weeks, three weeks, a month prior. Nobody tested it. Her doctors, nobody tested it at the nursing home. She fell, came in, was treated, admitted. We didn't test it, was shipped back there, fell again, came back to us. And now we identified it. So the question is, how many people in assisted living nursing homes have B12 deficiency? And we go, oh, well, they're like this because they're just old. Mm -hmm. And granted, you have a bunch of different you know, conditions or chronic illnesses. Why are we just going to let this go under the radar? Let, let them feel better. Let them be the best that they can be. I think exactly. that's cruel, inhumane, and it's, it's not right. Mm -hmm. I feel that the nursing home association, et cetera, whoever you know, maybe centers of disease control or Medicare, they should be the ones that I've written to them. Mm. They should be the uh, gatekeepers to say, hey, this person, when you enter a, a extended care facility, you, this has to be ruled out. That's how I would do it because Absolutely. it's so important and it's so more common in elderly. And it's something that you can treat and it's cheap to treat. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It makes so much sense. Um, you know, there's there's surely a, a percentage that could be re-attributed uh, in the budget for, for health if we weren't dealing with some of the results of B12 deficiency. Right. I mean, mm. use that money towards other things. It mm. doesn't mean everybody's going to have it. Again, mm. like we said, mm. 15 to 20 percent, mm. I think 19 is a you know good number. Mm. You know, it, it maybe different populations, it might be a little bit higher. So especially we already know that the elderly is higher. We already mm. know that. Mm. And um, we're, we're still not addressing yeah. it. Yeah. Sally, you're a, a mine of information on this subject. Like what an expert. Sally and I chatted for another while afterwards and her resilience in advocating for patients over decades is so impressive. I can only imagine how many thousands of people are grateful to her and Jeffrey, you know, for their work. Herself and Jeffrey's book made a huge difference to me at a time when I was really scared about my health outcomes. Now I supplement regularly with B12 and a B complex. And while I know that I haven't experienced those scary symptoms since, I did not at the time and I have not since received a diagnosis of true B12 deficiency. And I do believe that it's better to know and understand, you know, what is at the root cause of symptoms. So I don't know, for example, if I have pernicious anemia. Um, I've been anemic since I was a teenager. You know, I would have to go to the doctor and get a tonic or get some iron. Um, I mean, 
that could be as a result of my digestive issues, you know, um, could be as a result of stressful periods in my life, you know, um, I've endometriosis as well, you know, which is can can cause fatigue to um, any any sort of autoimmune condition can cause fatigue. So when I got relief from those symptoms at the time, I was just so happy to be feeling well enough to get back to getting on with life that, you know, I, I just didn't push my consultant you know he, he sort of just shrugged his shoulders when I was sitting in front of him and said maybe it's this Um, he sent me for an MRI and then I got a one-line letter afterwards saying that just that it looked normal you know I put it to the back of my head because I was feeling better and I just said to myself I'll come back to this you know when I get some other things out of the way and um, and that's what I'm doing now when you know what is at the root cause of something, you can address it properly and you can supplement efficiently, you know. So again, I would always recommend getting a medical diagnosis. My heartfelt thanks to Sally for sharing her immense knowledge and for her time and to herself and Jeffrey for writing their book and for continuing to advocate for their patients. We will catch up with Sally again in 2023. So the store cupboard staple for this episode is parsley and parsley is a really excellent nerve stimulant you know so thought in um our discussion around b12 which obviously impacts the central nervous system it might be appropriate parsley is a good source of vitamin c folic acid um folic acid is vitamin b9 and we know that works synergistically with vitamin b12 as well and it's also a good source of iron and other minerals including magnesium calcium potassium and zinc and it's a good source of dietary fiber now in terms of what you can do with parsley um what i would say first of all is just make sure that you have it so it's very easy to grow in the garden i can even grow it you know in a, in a pot on your on your patio um, obviously through the winter we mightn't have that but you can in all of the supermarkets sell herbs you know that you can pop onto your window ledge or or you can buy it dried obviously now you can chop it up and add it into salads and um, put it into soups sauces um, grilled fish you know you can make a lovely rub with parsley chop up your parsley garlic and some lemon zest and use it as a rub for chicken lamb or beef you could add it into a pesto sauce you could add it into a, like a hummus if you were making it yourself at home basically anything and everything even pull off a leaf and chew away on it while you're chopping your vegetables you know just have get some into you and as with all herbs you know a little bit goes a long way you know so just make sure you keep it visible so you can see it and use away and hopefully you'll um put some in your shopping trolley this week Thank you for listening to today's episode. I just wanted to clarify that the podcast is for informational purposes only and does not substitute professional care from a doctor or trained health professional, nor does it constitute medical advice or services if you're in a, in a position to need either. However, if you find it interesting, you can subscribe to make sure you don't miss future episodes or sign up for my newsletter on lynchsharkynutrition.ie.